Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to the dog show with Julie Forbes. Great to be here today in Seattle. Gorgeous day to take your dog for a walk. Eric, I know you're thinking the same thing. I can see it. I can see it in your expression. <laughs> That's true. I am yeah. thinking that. Mm-hmm. It is a great day to take your dog for a walk. It's it's mild still, you know. Yeah. It, yesterday, maybe a little hot to take the dog for a walk. But I always get today, stressed out when great. it gets hot out. I know. Yeah. <laughs> the dogs and cars thing. It's like, ah, if I hear a bark, I'm like, was that dog in a car? It's right. hot out. Right. How's Abby the Beagle doing? Abby's doing pretty well. Good. Yeah. She's getting up there in age, so she's yeah. uh she's sleeping a lot but uh seems to be enjoying life. That's so good. it's good. We take her on shorter walks now, uh where it's a, a lot of her just sniffing the neighborhood <laughs> in a slow pace rather than, you mm-hmm. know, going for the longer walks that we used to. But quality, uh, not quantity, huh? There you go. She yeah. seems to be enjoying it. But speaking of dogs getting older, did you see the news that the world's lar- uh, longest living dog yeah. uh, passed on today, Maggie the, the Kelpie? Uh, yeah, like 30? She was 30 years old. So RIP Maggie. Yeah. But wow. Yeah. To to live to 30 uh, for a dog is amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. For sure. Well, thanks for bringing that up. I think I saw a post about that. So. I'm sure it's, we've talked about grief a lot over the years, and we understand how yeah. hard it is to go through that. Well, apparently she passed in her sleep, so her human companion was very happy that that's how yeah. she went out, uh, as opposed to having to be put down. So Yeah, or having some sort of crisis. Exactly. Well, one quick announcement before we start with Kim Cavan, who's the author of a book that is coming out in just a few weeks called The Dog Merchants. I've done, this is our 372nd episode. and Speaking of long-lived. I know, right? And this is one of the most important topics that I will talk about on the show. So pay attention, please, and get the book. And you're ahead of the game by listening to the show, but there is so much information, and everybody who loves dogs and cares about the welfare of dogs on this planet Get this book and read it. It's it's so, so important. One of the most important topics, like I said. Um, so I'm going to be talking with Kim today about the dog merchants. Uh, real quick, the Vashon Sheepdog Trials are coming up June 9th through 12th this year on Vashon Island. Go to VashonSheepdogClassic.com for more information. My favorite event in this area all year long. I go every year for the whole weekend gorgeous and you get to see one of the quintessential relationships of human and dog working together as in partnership which I always enjoy and it's a gorgeous um, setting and just a great great escape from the city and it's a quick 20 minute ferry ride. It seems to be pretty good for the dogs too because Maggie uh, the Kelpie that passed on that was 30 oldest living dog was a sheep herder herself. There you go yeah yeah lived a happy long life. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have Kim Cavan with us on the phone from New Jersey, I believe. Kim, welcome to the dog show. Thank you. It's great to talk to you, Julie. Now, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You are one of the few who do. Good okay. job. Good. <laughs> uh, so that's K-A-V-I-N. And uh, you have written a very, very excellent book called The Dog Merchants. 
And this is, uh, let's see, coming out right at the very beginning of May. Is that right? Will be available for, for purchase? Correct. I, I think people can order it now and then it'll ship, I want to say May 2nd or May 3rd. So okay. They can... Great. Pre-order. I'm telling you. The Dog Merchants by Kim Cavan. Now, Kim is, uh, has written uh, another book called Little Boy Blue and uh, is a journalist and has done all sorts of stuff. Kim, this book is amazing. Thank there you. is so much information in it, and we are only going to get to a fraction of it. So definitely um, order this book for yourself and um, anyone who you know. Uh, it, this is so, so important because this is really ultimately dealing with uh, the rate of, you know, how many dogs are euthanized every year for, and, and in your book, it's really not for sort of overpopulation reasons, but other reasons that we'll get to. But, you know, the staggering numbers in this in this country alone of how many dogs every day are euthanized in shelters and in the system, something's not working right for the dogs. And you really, you really... Uh, take this thing apart. I just can't believe all the information that's in this book. So, so first of all, Kim, <laughs> where shall we start? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think my hand is still cramped from writing, um, writing down all the stuff for this interview. Um, now, do you have dogs? Do you have personal dogs? I do. I have two. One is Blue, who is the topic of the book I wrote in 2012 called yep. Little Boy Blue. Mm-hmm. For those of your listeners who know that book and like that book. He is doing great. He's six years old. He's right now very quietly eating a bone full of peanut butter so as not to disturb us. <laughs> Hopefully that will last. Yeah. And he has a younger adopted sister named Ginger who showed up here about four years ago as a foster puppy, uh, not as advertised, had some severe temperamental challenges, mm-hmm. multiple failed adoption attempts, and I simply decided to take on the challenge and... Uh, now she's an AKC canine good citizen and is doing pretty well in the world. Nice. So that's who I hang out with every day, Blue and Ginger. Nice. And how old is Ginger again? Ginger just turned four. Ah, and they are buddies? They love each other. Yeah, that's cute. Slash terrors together. They know how to get into trouble together, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fun, right? <laughs> so I think the understanding, you know, the dog merchants inside the big business of breeders, pet stores, and rescuers. And you really dissect this whole world of it, and you start the book off with a very vivid description of your experience. And and I, I am remembering correctly that you actually went to one of these auctions. Not only did I go spend a day at uh, what, what I believe is America's biggest legal dog auction, but I flew back a second time and spent a whole day with the owner of it, both in his office and driving around in his pickup truck to various puppy farms. Wow, that I mean, that must that because you the the account of it really brings you there. I really felt like I got a sense for the scene and you know the bringing these different dogs to the table, like to, literally to a table and. Oh, this dog. So basically, this is talking. You you talk about all of the different aspects in this book of the general whole industry of dogs and really looking at dogs as the business of dogs and, and really acknowledging that that is really what it comes down to is the money that's being made. 
And that's really yeah. where the power is as far as how we can kind of shift things. That's exactly right. When I, the way I came to this was I wrote Little Boy Blue, which followed this dog that I adopted who showed up sick, and it turned out he was from one of the biggest high-kill shelters with a gas chamber in North Carolina. And, and I wrote a book about what was going on there with the rescue transports and things. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that book, I had the experience that dog people are about as divided as Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders people mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. You're either a rescue person or a purebred person in a lot of cases. And I was casting about for some way to frame these issues that all dog lovers could talk about. Mm-hmm. How do you get people to stop screaming at each other yeah. and look at things in a new way? Was yeah. what I was, what I was just looking for it. I didn't know what it was. And I went to, I think I was at a no-kill conference in Washington, and a woman just at breakfast very casually said, I was just out at the dog auction last week, and la-da-da-da-da. And I just dropped my fork and said, what are you talking about, dog <laughs> auctions? We don't have that in America. <laughs> well, we do. Mm-hmm. And anybody can go. So I hopped on a plane. I didn't even have a book deal. I just booked a ticket and went out because I wanted to see it for myself. Mm. I thought it was going to be horrific. I thought it was going to be some dark, creepy, disgusting place with dogs screaming and crying. And, you know, if depending on how you feel about commercial breeding and such things, the more horrifying thing that I discovered was the normalcy. It was light. It was bright. There were bleachers. You could go buy snacks and sodas. People were there with their kids. Um, And this just went on for eight hours, just auctioning off a couple hundred dogs to the highest bidder. And it got curiouser and curiouser as I realized not only are there commercial puppy farmers in that room bidding on dogs, but there's also rescuers yeah. in that room bidding on dogs, trying to outbid the breeders so they can offer the dogs as rescued from puppy mills after actually paying for them. And I thought, bingo, It went a light went off in my head. This is about cash. Right. This is about a marketplace that is that whole ecosystem. It just epitomized it right in that barn. Everything going on with dogs was epitomized right in that barn. And the thought came to me, what if I wrote a book that was half about breeding and half about rescue and all about following the money straight right. across the industry? Let's do that. And let's open at the dog auction to try to make that point clear. That's how it came to be. Yeah. You say that um, the money spent buying dogs as pets represents income to small and large scale breeders, pet stores, public shelters and private rescue groups of somewhere in the vicinity of $11 billion each year around the globe. It's a lot. Big business. You know, it's global, and I make really clear in the book that it's the best estimate. These numbers are impossible to sure. nail down, but I used, I want to say it was more than a dozen different sources within America, in Europe, in Britain, everywhere that I could find any kind of data, and I applied it to an average sale price of less than $400 per dog. Mm-hmm. So you're not talking about $5,000 per dog driving that amount up. You're talking about quantity of dogs driving that amount up. The scale at which we want dogs as pets is rather shocking when you look at the numbers. Yeah. So you open up talking about this, this dog, the dog auction experience and kind of, you know, illuminating that whole world and letting the reader really get a sense for what it's like to be there and the different kinds of people who are there. And, um, you know, there's even, you know, just the business of it and how they're sold. And, um, you know, many dog owners, you say, may never set foot 
in in that barn, but they are the ultimate buyers of the product being bought, brought to the folding table, whether they're comfortable with the fact or not. Um, and then you said you talked about one of the last vehicles to leave was a truck pulling a box trailer painted black on all sides with a logo and telephone number of a heating and cooling company. And that if anyone passed that truck driving northbound um, out of Wheaton, they wouldn't they wouldn't have any clue that there might be a dozen or more dogs inside. And I think what's so interesting about not just the the auction part, but then when you were visiting the Hunt Corporation, uh, I think that's what it was called, where they're yep. the the sort of readying puppies um, to go to pet stores. So they kind of gather them all from breeders and then distribute them basically to pet stores. Right, by tens of thousands a year. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's just insane to try to, to try to wrap your brain around that. Um, but just how hidden all of this is. And, you know, how, how well, we don't even know, you know, most people don't even know that, that these things exist. Like I you, agree that you the know? existence of the dog auctions has shocked most people who've read the early copies of the book so far. Yeah. How can, it's the same thing I felt at that breakfast table when I said, what are you talking about, dog auctions? How is that a thing? Yeah. And you go out to this part of America where our consumer demand, most of these people talk about buyers on the coast, from Seattle down to California, from Maine on down to Philadelphia. We are the ones driving this mm-hmm. with our cash. And our insatiable demand for these dogs who look a certain way and that they can get money for. So we invented this business. And the people who know that things like this exist, that are aware of places like the dog auction and the Hunt Corporation, they tend to hate them. They tend to be rescue people who want them shut down. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem with that, of course, is we are the reason they exist. Why? How are you going to shut down a business for which there is insatiable demand? The consumers are the ones driving it. It's kind of like trying to shut down booze in the 1920s. You know, everybody could go find whiskey during Prohibition because they want it. So what I talk about in the book is if we are not going to be conscious consumers, we are never going to fix these problems. We have to start understanding the business and the cash flow behind all of this and how it all ties into the rescue movement as well. If we are ever going to get these kinds of things under control. And I think understanding the, you know, you go through, one of the things that I appreciate so much about the book is that I really learn, I feel like I can see this whole world of it in a way that I I never, you know, that I I didn't understand before. It was like, okay, uh, overpopulation, mass production of dogs. It's like overpopulation. There's too many dogs. And you really are clear that it, that's not necessarily what actually is the, the source of the problem. It's There's a lot of, which is, you know, kind of going back to as much as we, as much as so many of us in this country, especially really view our dogs as family members, the business is that dogs are a product that are marketed and sold and that that then then you have to understand the psychology of the consumer which puts it all back on each individual it's exactly right and to try to tie a little bow around it so readers who haven't read it can understand what we're saying here if you understand that dogs are a legal product for sale and you think of them as widgets 
like a business for the purposes of this exercise. Again, I love my dogs. They sleep in my bed. They get Christmas presents under the tree. Yeah. You know, but for the purposes of this yeah. intellectual journey, yep. you have to understand that this is a business. And these are products, and they are packaged and marketed and sold. And the minute, for instance, a dog, even a $5,000 purebred puppy, the minute that dog crosses the threshold of a shelter in the United States of America, the dog's value plummets. And you have to ask yourself why. What is it about the way we perceive the dogs? What is it about the marketing? What is it about the business interests on both sides? that are causing that to happen Mm -hmm. and leading to so many problems. And when you start going down that rabbit hole, you get into everything from religion to politics to marketing tricks that work on us in shopping malls that we don't even realize is happening to us with the dogs because we don't think of them as products. And we need to. We need to love them with our hearts but help them with our heads. And what this book tries to do is get people to understand the issues from a different perspective so we can wrap our brains around what's actually happening. Yeah. And one of the one of the um, biggest components to that perception is, and you go into a lot of of detail about this in your in the book, um, is dog shows. And I thought it was so interesting to learn about the history of of do- of dog shows, purebred dogs, and and then sort of the evolution and and and. Um, sort of as a way for people who weren't, you know, royalty or upper class, that they've basically figured out a way to possess and breed dogs that were that were started out kind of as status symbols. And you, you compare dog breeds, as far as understanding the psychology goes, a lot to cars. And I that was kind of something that I felt, too. It was kind of like, I have this dog and this represents what I want you to think about me. Um, I have this dog. Everybody knows this dog costs at least $2,500 and more. So therefore you're going to think that if you see me with this dog, that I, I must be of some, some sort of level as, as somebody would with a Lamborghini or Ferrari. Right. And, and it's very intentional that you think that or that anyone thinks that not necessarily you. One of the, one of the, things that you learn when you go spend some time with the commercial puppy farmers is the way dogs are talked about out there is pretty different from the way those of us in New Jersey or Seattle are talking about dogs. Right. And for instance, you know, I went, here's a good example. I went, chapter two, you come with me to the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment that was not on camera that I write about. The cameras were turned off. Nobody would have known it happened except the people in that building, where the announcer came over the loudspeaker and said, you know, if you're here trying to figure out which dog to get, you can rest assured that none of the dogs here tonight came from a puppy mill. Right. We are the breeders who care. Right. And everybody in Madison Square Garden stood up and cheered with this self-congratulating clapping. And what I sat there knowing was that, well, when the sanctioning body of that dog show and many others, the American Kennel Club, when they talk about those kinds of shows to the commercial breeders, it's in magazines that we don't generally see where they write articles. I'm holding one in my hand right now. It's called Creating Demand for Purebred Dogs. And it's written by the guy who at the time was the marketing director for the American Kennel Club. And he talks about how breeders should keep giving money to the American Kennel Club because of their events, 
strategy. They put the money back into these kinds of dog shows that help drive up demand for the purebred dogs, and I quote, no matter where the consumer chooses to buy their purebred dog, Mm -hmm. unquote. Mm -hmm. So what we're actually watching and cheering for is a marketing exercise that drives up demand that gets filled in places like the dog auction. And none of us ever put that business loop together in our heads because we don't understand that these other pieces exist until you go out there and look around and spend some time. Well, and you, at some point in the book, uh, somebody, I think it was a, a, a quote in someone who you were talking with in the industry said, you know, we're basically one of the biggest um, money makers for the American Kennel Club because a lot of these dogs are, you know, re- have papers or whatever they're going to go and register their dogs with the American Kennel Club when the dogs came from, um, I think, I don't know if it was a conversation within Hunt Corporation or if it was somebody else. Yeah, the man who said that was Andrew Hunt, the founder, okay. who was having, as it was explained to me, it was told to me, mm-hmm. was having a conversation with the American Kennel Club. And at the time, it was before the Great Global Recession, mm-hmm. the Hunt Corporation was moving about 90,000, 90,000 purebred puppies a year through its $10 million facility onto semi-trailer trucks and distributing them across America to pet stores. And this guy believed, and no one argued with him apparently, that he was the biggest client of the American Kennel Club because every one of those puppies not only could have purebred registration papers for a fee with the American Kennel Club, but could also have like the Microchip Unite program through the American right. Kennel Club and whatever else right. they could come up with to get five more dollars right, right. at the buyer. Right. So. Again, we're cheering for this on television. When we watch these dog shows, this is what they're using the money to support right. that we don't know exists. Well, we do now. <laughs> yeah. And then there's another another kind of swinging from the other, you know, it, it, the, it's sort of like this idea that there's like these, and, you know, I'm one of them before before the book to a degree where I was, I mean, and I know this, there's plenty of hoarding situations and small scale breeders. And, and I'm about to give an example from the book, but I have more, more, I thought that more of a, of the bigger picture problem was these farms, you know, these large scale puppy farms, basically. Um, but you gave an example from actually Washington state, um, kind of acknowledging, speaking to that comment made at the Westminster show, you know, well, if you're, if you're here associated here, then you're a long way away from a quote unquote puppy mill, which actually has no, no real definition. You wrote even breeders sanctioned by these groups as experts can turn out to be the charlatans who keep adult dogs in miserable conditions while selling their puppies as top grade. It can go on for years in January, 2013, the AKC reported that it had stripped the dog show judge and Chihuahua breeder Margaret Ann Hamilton of all privileges for a decade. The action came after authorities in Washington state searched two homes and according to the Seattle Post Intelligencer and the Issaquah Press found about 100 dogs living in feces covered stacked crates walking in neurotic circles from constant confinement and desperately in need of medical care, some so badly malnourished their jawbones were decomposed or gone. Yet, like the accused vet tech in Indiana, who you had talked about earlier, 
Hamilton had outstanding references as a small-scale breeder, and she was even a judge, if anyone buying a Chihuahua puppy from her had cared to ask. So, I mean, talk about real close, you know. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the points I make in the book, I do my best not to point fingers and take sides. And this is a controversial stance. You know, I have everybody, I'm sure, from the American Kennel Club to the Humane Society of the United States upset that I'm not describing these things according to the party line. But when you actually go in and look, you have responsible and irresponsible breeders, you have responsible and irresponsible rescuers, and you have them on big places, you have them in small places, you have them in backyards, you have them on giant farms. And it's an inconvenient truth that some of the things we're trying to put in place to stop what we've all been told is the source of the problem really miss a big part of the problem. It's hard to explain to people how something like that could even be possible with an AKC show judge, but clearly it is. Mm -hmm. And we have to be thinking about that. Yeah. Or the other example of a, a veterinary technician who worked at a vet clinic and Everyone who knew her, you know, it was a similar situation that you described, you know, dogs living in inches of feces and no, you know, no access to water and I, just horrible, horrible nightmare conditions. And this is somebody or everybody who knew the person was just stunned. You know, so many people, professionals in the dog world, just stunned, had no idea. Um, yeah, there's a woman I quote who I think put it really well. Um, Elizabeth Brinkley, longtime breeder of, I believe, AKC champion Shelties, Shetland Sheepdog, mm-hmm. who does a lot of work with uh, legal issues relating to purebred dogs. Yeah. And the way she put it was, you know, a lo- it, it, it's almost identical to what you hear when you talk about some rescue, when you talk with rescue people. They say, you know, a lot of people on our side want to just bury their heads in the sand and point their fingers at the other guy and say, it's not us, we're the good guys. Mm-hmm. It's going to take more very big, visible busts of AKC show judges or Westminster winners, whatever you want to call it. And on the rescue side, too, you're going to have more. You, you see it if you just look for it. There's reports all the time of rescuers moving sick dogs or having problems or whatever. There's money to be made here. Yeah. And the, the, the sad reality is that when you have, have created consumer demand this big for a product, you're going to have scumbags come out of the woodwork. Yeah. You just are. It doesn't matter what the product is. And if and the more you can fake out the public, the more you can get them to believe you're one of the good guys, the more you're going to be able to stay in business. And we have to be on the lookout for this. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. But one of the things that I want to come back talking about that <clears throat> I think apart for me, that was like, Ugh. oh, man, people are... People are something else sometimes, you know, how fickle we can be, I feel, or how vulnerable we are to marketing and, and spending and following trends and fads. And you, one of the things that you acknowledge that I've, you know, sort of talked about over the years um, in my own life about the pattern, you know, when Lady and the Tramp came out, Cocker Spaniels, when 101 Dalmatians came out, Dalmatians, and and you kind of get into that part of this um this machine of at least getting into the creating the demand and, and the response, like actually what happens when, uh, for example, Disney makes a movie that features a certain breed of dog and actually the fate of that dog breed after that. So we're going to get into that when we come back from break. I'm talking with Kim Cavan, who's the author of a book that is 
available for pre-order right now. Uh, its publication date is May 2nd. So coming up here real soon, you can um, go ahead and just uh, pre-order it. It's called The Dog Merchants, Inside the Big Business of Breeders, Pet Stores, and Rescuers. This is an important book for everybody who's interested in the welfare of dogs on this planet to read. So please do so. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Kim Cavan. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And the only real thing you want to see Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Missing Link, we cover the world of animals. This week, May 14th, it's a Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I can help you understand your animal friends and resolve any problems, so plan to give me a call with your questions or about any animal-related topic on your mind, plus more with animal totems and messages, all on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp? That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. And now back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. We're back with Kim Cavan, author of a book that is being released on May 2nd. You can pre-order it now. It's called The Dog Merchants, Inside the Big Business of Breeders, Pet Stores, and Rescuers. Today is episode number 372, and this is one of, if not the most important topic that I have talked about so far in the whole time of the show. So please listen carefully and please get this book and read it. 
it is so important that we all understand really the nature of this business. Kim, welcome back. Thank you, Julie. So, so much to go over. The book, I mean, I am just so, I feel so empowered with information. So thank you so much for for writing this book and putting all of this together because there's so much in it. Um, And it's not as hard to be with as I think I anticipated it would have been. Um, it, I, you know, in the way that it's very, uh, you know, balanced in, in the writing and, and you do, you do touch on certainly give some examples of, like I mentioned, one of them in the last segment, you know, this, these kind of hard to, hard to, hard to visualize images of, you know, dogs in really rough conditions, but it's not, it's not that way. I'm really sensitive about that kind of stuff. And I actually was sort of thinking along the way, like, huh, for, I think because of the context of this, I felt like. I was able to be with all of it and not feel like, oh, God, this is just going to, like, give me nightmares for weeks. It's such a huge compliment. Thank you. And I want to tell you why I take that one so deeply and personally, and I'm so proud to have you say that and Mm. grateful. Mm -hmm. Um, When I wrote my previous book, Little Boy Blue, Blue's picture is on the cover. Mm -hmm. And I would go to book signings with Blue, who was two years old, cute, happy, friendly as can be, full-body waggle when people come over, happy to take treats, doing his tricks, all that kind of stuff. People would look at the book, and they'd look at me, and they'd hand me the book and say, I'm sorry, I can't read these books. The dog always dies at the end. Uh And I would say, this is Blue. (laughs) Would you like to pet him and say hello? He's alive and well. It's a happy ending. And they would look at the dog and look at the book and hand it back to me and say, I can't take it. I can't read these kinds of books. I don't want to be crying. Yeah. And so when I, got, when I sat down to write The Dog Merchants, I was, I was keenly aware of how I was phrasing things and trying very hard to explain things mm-hmm. without, I think as one reviewer put it, I don't tug too hard on your heartstrings. Mm-mm. I do that on purpose. I'm trying to foster conversation and understanding. I don't want you to close the book and walk away. I want you to keep reading. And I don't want to see that kind of stuff either. I mean, I've been in those horrible places. We all know that they exist. I don't need to spell that out for you to to understand what I'm talking about. Well, and I think your earlier point is that this, in order for us to really, um, us humans, to really make a difference in a way that is going to ultimately increase the welfare of dogs in this country and on the planet is for us to approach this intellectually and not emotionally. And that, that is my opinion, that when we see the dog, whether it's a you know adorable mutt, a beautiful purebred, whatever your flavor of the day that you like is, all of the blood drains from our brain. It, <laughs> it does. Goes right to our heart, and we do stupid things and give money to bad people yeah. without thinking yep. about the consequences. And that is what I'm trying to help empower people to understand. What is going on in this transaction? What are the business forces that led you to that moment? And what do you need to do to be a conscious consumer? Right. Bringing in some awareness of, of uh, the intellectual aspect of it, knowing the emotional part of it's not going anywhere. That's part of the magic of dogs. Part of the beauty and the and the wonder of their relationship with us on this planet in its best forms and and in this this particular conversation needs to be solved with with intellect and understanding and balance. Um, so that's and, and you do a great job of that. So we talk Thanks. about yeah we talk about you talk about in the book the the one of the I thought so interesting understanding the 
the human psychology and, and sort of behavior around spending and in particular around this industry of, of dogs? And, and do you, do you uh, when you're looking to bring a dog into your home, do you look for a purebred dog? Do you look for a mixed breed dog um, from a breeder or a shelter? Because now even breeders are doing sort of designer mixed breeds. Um, yes, is, we, we write about the German Labrador coming yeah. to a market near you oh, soon. I know. Oh, and all the doodles. There's so many doodles now. Um, so the whole movie, the movie and television industry, and even even commercials like the Taco Bell commercial sent chihuahuas through the roof as far as spending went. Yep. The Yokiero Taco Bell and then, and then uh, 101 Dalmatians. And you wrote about this woman who s- stood outside of a movie theater and... Uh, just with with her Dalmatian, who worked in Dalmatian Rescue, waiting to greet the crowds after the release of the new 101 Dalmatians movie to try to educate. Her story was so powerful. I, I'm I'm glad it stuck with you because it sticks with me too. Yeah. Um, just this image of this woman, a woman and a dog, a woman and a Dalmatian up against the marketing of a global Disney machine. Yeah. Trying to help. I just that image in my head. I, I will never get it out yeah. of my head. Um, the reason I thought it was important to tell Patty Dane's story from Dalmatian Rescue, I think she was in Florida, if I remember correctly. Um, there is an often stated, it's often stated as fact, that when you put dogs in dog shows, when you put them on TV, when you put them anywhere that gets mass media exposure, it does not translate into an increase in sales of those types of dogs. And the reason that some people claim this to be true is they look at AKC registration data Mm. and say, well, look, the data didn't go up very high, so it must not be happening. What this woman explains is that it's not a fair way to judge the problem Mm. because not everybody who goes and gets a copycat chihuahua or Dalmatian or whatever it is is going to register their dog with the AKC or buy it from a reputable breeder or anything like that. It's not a reasonable way to gauge the problem. And what she talks about is the spike of Dalmatian numbers in the shelters by that Christmas. I think it was the movie came out in the fall, and a few months later by Christmas, uh, some of the stats are the Humane Society of Boulder in Colorado had a 310% spike in people dumping Dalmatians that they bought on a whim. The Humane Society in Tampa Bay, Florida, 762% increase. This woman uh, had 130 Dalmatians showing up at her rescue group, and it usually took her more than two years. And it happened in a few months after that movie came out. So she took her Dalmatian and stood outside these movie theaters and said, please, people, here is a stuffed animal. Get the stuffed animal. (laughs) Don't. Don't rush out and buy a Dalmatian because you, you just saw this movie. Yeah. And, of course, look what she's up against. She's going to lose that fight. But I love her spirit and her effort to do that and bring attention to the problem. Yeah. Um, well, it is interesting, too, because it also does look like um, in 1985 when Disney had re-released the original 1961 cartoon version of 101 Dalmatians, AKC registrations for the breed had increased spectacularly from about 8,000 puppies a year to nearly 43,000. So they actually are seeing those numbers on that end of it too, but I think it's absolutely valid, as Patty Dane suggests, to look at the numbers in rescue 
um, to really gauge the impact, you know, kind of the, the flow of the product? Yeah, it depends on who's selling the dogs. Like, I remember the Chihuahua thing from Taco Bell. Yeah. Something was, I don't want to say wrong with the dog. There's nothing wrong with how dogs look, in my opinion, period. But the, the breeders of Chihuahuas didn't like that dog. Right. It didn't look right according to the standard right. that the dog shows. Right. So all those dogs that got purchased after the Taco Bell commercial went crazy, they couldn't register them as purebreds, a lot of them, because they didn't come from breeders who were breeding to those AKC standards. So Mm -hmm. I do think you're right. It depends on the kind of dog a lot of times. But I think, as Patty Dane put it, that Dalmatian rescuer, people would breed anything with spots to anything else with spots to try to make a quick buck. I think that was how she put it about the Dalmatian. Yeah. Well, and then you go on, you know, you talk about the the dogs in Sochi and then the dogs in South Korea who are eaten and, and that aspect of the industry and the dogs in, in Japan and then the dogs in the U.S. and how we have all of these facilities that are just, you know, sort of um, killing all of these quote-unquote extra dogs, um, but you kind of get to the, the point about that it's really not an excess of supply that is the problem. and then And then we talk about there's so much information in this book. It's called The Dog Merchants. Please get it and read it. It's it's an important one, one of the most important that I'll ever that I'll ever read in this world of dogs and humans. Um you can pre-order it now. So because we don't have 5 hours to talk, <laughs> <laughs> um we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what to, you know, how to be a smart shopper. And how to kind of what can you what can you do to help um, sort of move this in in a productive direction and and spend wisely in a way that is going to better this whole scene of of the dog big business and you know what can you do as a consumer um, to help the problem? So we'll be back in just a few minutes. I'm talking with Kim Cavan. She's the author of The Dog Merchants. Inside the big business of breeders, pet stores, and rescuers. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression... Even dog food sensitivities, you name it, and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) 
Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, and we're back talking with Kim Cavan, author of The Dog Merchants, Inside the Big Business of Breeders, Pet Stores, and Rescuers. Uh, let's see. On sale May 2nd, but you can pre-order it now. I highly recommend it. It's one of the most informative and important books I've read. So, Kim. Hello. We don't have five hours, like I said, unfortunately. So, um I'm going to be getting late there in New Jersey anyway for you if we did. So, um, you know, what what is there to know, you know, for people? Okay, well, gosh, geez, thanks for dumping all of this on me right now as I'm listening to this. One of your points, which I love, which is awesome, is like, hey, you know what? Unlike other industries, this is not a freight train that one person is, you know, trying to stop. This is actually something that we can change. There's so many aspects to this sort of machine, this business of selling dogs, and that really, if if everybody gets educated and and aware or enough people, um, we can actually really make a difference because it's all about where the money's going, just like anything else. One hundred percent. That is what I believe. I, I I'm I feel like we have been marketed to yes. in ways that set us up. Do not work together as dog lovers. Yeah. This notion that you're a rescue person or a purebred person, mm-hmm. it just negates the idea that we're dog people yeah. and that we love dogs. And and most people, you know, almost half the homes in America have dogs. Mm-hmm. There's over 100 million of us. We, most of us, just want to be able to go get a dog from somebody who treats dogs well. Right. Whether you're talking about purebreds or rescue, we just want to do the right thing right. by the dog. Right. And it's really hard to do that if we're being divided and told, well, the other team is bad and everything about our team is good. And, yeah. you know, it, it just doesn't work. And, and what I advocate for in the end of the book, the last two chapters, are ways that we can do this both as shoppers in person and as shoppers online. Mm-hmm. So what what do you think, what are some great tools for people to know if say like, oh, okay, well, we're we're actually bringing a dog into the family, what do we, what do we do? Because it's like, well, you can't, you know, how do you know this versus that? What are there, what is there to know? I I think that two things. The first thing you do, you have to go in prepared with smart questions. And we have a whole chapter in the book that gives examples, not only of the questions, but some answers you might hear and what they might mean. Yep. And the the most important thing I can say about those questions is they are open-ended. They cannot be answered with a yes or a no. Instead of saying to the person, is the dog socialized? They're going to say yes. 
great dog, take the dog. Right. If you say to the person, how was the dog socialized? I, I said that to a breeder of Malamutes at one point. And she said, well, the day that they're born, I take them away from the mother so they bond with people instead of dogs. Oof. And most people would say oof to that. But you're not going to get that answer unless you ask the question the right way. So I give breeders tons of examples of open-ended questions and the kind of answers you might hear. And once you kind of get that pattern in your brain, you automatically become a smarter shopper. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing, which I'm super proud of and excited about the early response to is, as I was thinking about dogs from this perspective as products, and again, love my dogs, members of my family, but to solve these problems, yeah. we're talking about business here. Yes. Well, what is the dog business missing for consumers that we have in every other business? And I thought about hotels. Okay, what happens when I want to find out if a hotel is good? Where, where do I go? What do I do? Mm. Well, I go online, and I look at a site like TripAdvisor, and I read the ratings and reviews. And I do the same thing with restaurants at a site like Yelp. People do it with my books on Amazon. Right, you know? right. Why do we not have a place where the more than 100 million of us dog lovers in America can get together online and rate the breeders and rescuers? Yeah. And say, this is what happened when I actually got the dog home. The people were honest or the people lied to me. The dog was sick, whatever it is. Um, and so I built it. I built dogmerchants.com. I took almost the whole first check I got for the book advance, and I just got a developer because I think it should exist. I found a website developer who had had a bad experience with a rescue dog. She loves the rescue dog, but the guy lied to her. The dog cost her a couple thousand in veterinary bills the day she got home, and she said, this needs to exist. So no. we have a place to look, and people can go there today, dogmerchants.com. Oh. Let's start pooling our information together. It doesn't cost you a nickel. I'm not going to charge you a single dollar. Let's just do it. Let's just get together and do it because we're dog lovers across the board. Yeah. It really is the most powerful way, I think, to sort of vet a business or someone who provides a service or whatever is, what do you do? You go look at reviews. You go look at Yelp. I was actually going to jokingly say, Kim, make one. You can call it Yipe or something like that. <laughs> but and, and then you're like, I built one. I'm like, yes. <laughs> the, the good news is I, in addition to being a, a writer, a journalist, I have about 10 years worth of experience in website development. That's just the way the media business is going. So yeah. I, I just knew how to do it. I knew who to hire and figure it out and how to get it done. And again, I just think it should have, it should exist. You know, could I use that ten grand to fix my roof? Absolutely, <laughs> that would yeah. be nice. But I think this is more important, and I think we actually can change the world. There's a there's millions, tens of millions more of us dog lovers than there are of the worst breeders and rescuers, mm. and we can lift up the good ones and sink the bad ones with yeah. ratings and reviews that even the most casual shoppers will see on their cell phones, and hopefully we will make an impact on them too with people who would never even listen to a show like this or think about these issues. They'll look at a smartphone and see a rating and make a decision, and right. it can help. It can help tremendously. Absolutely, and I think the, the thing too is I know that for me, understanding, you know, sometimes things happen, you know, sometimes even from the best the best breeder, somebody has a problem with a dog. And that was one of the questions that you mentioned at, at towards the end of the book where you give example questions for people to to ask that are open-ended. You know, how do you handle when a dog doesn't work out for a family or whatever? Because sometimes it happens or sometimes a dog gets sick or sometimes 
whatever. And so you're wanting to look at wherever you got the dog from to be responsible and 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 say, oh, OK, well, you know, can I can I take the dog back? Can we can we help you get the dog? Well, can we do whatever we need to do to make it right? Versus so many times when people get a dog and then something goes wrong and then they call the breeder who told them before they got the puppy, before they paid them, oh, yeah, you know, get in touch with any questions. And then once the puppy's shipped to them, there's nothing. They Same don't get with any some response. rescue groups. Yeah. And, yeah. And the it's opposite true. with some breeders and some rescue groups. You, you know, there's yeah. great ones and there's lousy ones right across the board. And I, and I think that a, a website like this, it empowers us to out them all. Yeah. Like, let's promote the good ones. So that all of us know what's going on, and let's let's oust the bad ones. Let's let's think them. You know, bad ratings it. do that, and if they deserve it, we should be giving it to them. We are in charge of this business. We are the consumers. Our money will change the way people behave. If you stop giving the bad people money, they're gonna go away. We just have to get together and identify them. Right, right. And so that's all about having a way to communicate with each other. We have the internet. We can do it. Well, it wasn't free for me, but it's free for everybody listening today, <laughs> just because I think it should be. <laughs> That's the way it's going to be. So it's called dogmerchants.com. Yeah, and people can go there, and obviously there's a whole section about the book if they want to learn more about the book, see yep. some videos, that type of stuff, too. They'll find it all there. Okay, so there's a way to search the database if somebody wants to sort of check out a breeder and see, okay, does anyone else have anything to say about this individual or this business or this rescue group. Um, and then there's also a way for people to write a review. So I'm on the website right now. And they can add, you know, we have about, literally I spent nights and weekends building this until about 10 o'clock at night. I built it in a way that Google will find it. A lot of these come up now, number one, on the Google search results uh-huh. when you're looking for these breeders and rescuers. Yeah. What we have right now is about 4,000 breeders and rescuers listed on the site, shelters, pet stores, all of it. There's obviously more than that in America, and I'm hoping that America will help me put it together. You know, we have plenty more room. It's an infinite amount of room, and the more people who come to the site and leave reviews and help us add the listings, the better off we're all going to be, and the better off all the dogs are going to be, more importantly. Exactly. Well, thank you. Gosh, I'm like, thank you, thank you for writing the book, and now look at you creating this website to really try to provide a tool to help us actually get this going in another direction and to really clean up this business because these are after all our dogs who we're talking about. And I know if I'm protective of anything, it's my dogs and dogs in general. So what a great idea. Dogmerchants.com is the website. If you've had any experiences, good or bad, over the years with breeders, rescue groups, um, in your in your you know acquiring a dog, please go and um, add your experience to the website dogmerchants.com and order the book. You can pre-order it now. It's called The Dog Merchants by Kim Cavan, Inside the Big Business of Breeders, Pet Stores, and Rescuers. Kim, thanks so much for all the work that you've done, and thanks for listening to the Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.